The biggest thing to take from what we've learned is to enable autonomy as far as possible. Autonomy has long been proven to increase productivity. Work style is probably the extreme end of autonomy. But the principle remains that the more autonomous people can be, the more productive they can be. And we found through our research that that is true. We've also found that the reason for that is for an increased state of well-being. So the more autonomy you have, the better your well-being and therefore the more productive you are. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Lizzie Penny and Alex Hurst. Alex and Lizzie met whilst in the same digital agency about eight years ago and then had a conversation in a pub and they decided it just wasn't working for them. Lizzie was on maternity leave. Alex had just fallen out of love with his 60-hour weeks and they wanted to do something different. So they started changing the way they worked. And now, I guess, Work Style is the book that they've co-authored. And that's the, what have they learned about how to build a modern business? They now have a consultancy called Hoxby, which does work with large organizations, helping them understand what the future of work might look like. So it's remote and it's asynchronous and it's outcome-based, not time-based. And that's some positivity, positive benefits for everybody, including those that are currently excluded from work. Those people, like Lizzie found herself working through maternity and difficult pregnancy and recovering from cancer, able to keep working and keep making a contribution in the purpose-driven, purpose-led, purposeful organization that they have created. Fascinating conversation, trying to tease out with them the differences between autonomy location and maybe freelance quality of people trying to tease these different things out because often they get clumped together as this is the way it needs to be and i can see working with the clients that we've got some people have autonomy in place although they're still office-based some people have some elements of their organization still working in an office and some fully remote. So just trying to tease these different things out and get some from them, some best practice or some ways of working or how they've overcome some challenges or overcome challenges for the clients that they've worked with, like Unilever. Absolutely fascinating conversation. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Hi, I'm Alex Hurst. I'm the 
co-founder and joint CEO of Hoxby and co-author of Workstyle, a revolution for well-being, productivity and society. And I live in Bishopston, which is on the border of Wiltshire and Oxfordshire in the UK. And I'm Lizzie Penny, and I'm also the co-founder and joint CEO of Hoxby and the co-author of the book Workstyle. And I live in Bristol and have three small children. Fab. Well, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. And so we were chatting before we started recording, and I guess you've had a huge amount of interest in what you do as a result of the pandemic and remote work, but you guys have been at this for some time. When did you start with Workstyle and why did you start with Workstyle? Um, good question. So it was before everyone else, <laughs> uh, before everyone else was thinking about autonomy at work. So we came up with the concept of Workstyle in the pub where all the best ideas are founded eight years ago. So long pre-pandemic. And Alex and I um, came at it from for different reasons. So we came to that conversation in the pub for different personal reasons. For me, it was having my first child. And I'm embarrassed to say that that was really the first time that my eyes were opened to pervasive inequalities at work. Because until then, my husband and I had been pretty much equal. And then I had a baby and found that I wanted to work evenings when he was asleep because I didn't go out anymore, rather than being in the office in the time when he was awake. And I started to recognize that there were a lot of people in the world who could benefit from working in different patterns as well. And Alex, I know you came to it from a different way. I'll let you tell your story. Yeah, absolutely. So I came to the conversation off the back of burnout. I'd been measuring my performance at work on the basis of how many hours I'd been putting in. And eventually I just became numb to work. I, I didn't enjoy the highs. I I didn't feel emotional about the lows. I was just numb to the whole thing. And I realized that I had a mental health issue with work. Our relationship was broken and it needed rebuilding on new terms. So rather than thinking about my contribution in terms of hours and you know, trying to do a 60-hour week or more, I would think about it in terms of what I output and what the outcomes of that output were which was a completely new psychological contract with work for me uh, as someone who'd always valued time spent in the office. And actually, I'm ashamed to say, perpetuating the idea of presenteeism within that office environment. So that was my big sort of realisation, really, that brought me to the conversation in the public, Lizzie, which is I want to be judged on my output, not my hours. And I think what that led us to was coming up with this concept of work style, which is a new word, which is the freedom to choose when and where you work and being judged on your output. And that was eight years ago. We then started Hoxby, um, which is a social enterprise, in order to test that concept in practice because we found no one else was doing that. And we work with big clients like Unilever, AIA, Amazon, Merck, Divine Chocolate, um, in, in producing outputs through Hoxby. But for me personally, the journey didn't end there. I had a lot of complications in my second pregnancy and worked from bed a lot. And then moved to Bristol from London with no disruption to my work, which was brilliant. And then was diagnosed with cancer and worked through cancer again on my own terms. So I feel like what started is just a conversation in the pub has been something that Alex and I have really put to the test over the last eight years. And what jobs were you doing eight years ago? 
Well, I was running a marketing agency. And I think Alex and I increasingly, as you'll know, if you read the book, um, consult on the future of work. But what was interesting was that this really came about partly because the marketing agency didn't work. Um, We either didn't have enough people or we didn't have enough work. Oh, we had too many people, too much work. And so there were, there's a business element of this as well, which is about efficiency and productivity, both at a personal level and at a total level of how you can make the working world more efficient, I think. Alex, what were you what were you doing eight years ago? Yeah, so I was at the same marketing agency. But I was running the, um, the account function, looking after all the clients. And the exciting thing about that business was we were growing it from nothing. And it was a lot of fun and we learned an awful lot along the way. But I think most people who work in the creative industries would tell you that it's long hours and hard graft, but I don't think that's necessarily unique to the creative industry. But it's also uh, quite an ambiguous industry in, in the creation of something. You know, It's subjective whether, whether that's a great piece of work or not. And inevitably, hours can turn into days uh, in terms of workload. So things can things can easily spiral out out of control if if you allow it to. Oh, definitely. Like lots and lots of digital agencies. <laughs> the uh, spring one up tomorrow, and then typically people are overcharging, undercharging, and over delivering. And as you say, you've got feast and famine, and not always do you have top performers across the whole organization is my experience having either run one or worked with a number of digital agencies and so you definitely have efficiency issues that once you get past that sort of team of the six people who founded it we hire somebody else and they're not quite as good as the fifth person we hired i think that's certainly true when working in the traditional way uh, as we were then starting hoxby has has shown us a completely different way of doing things that is that answers a lot of those challenges actually so hoxby is a community of freelancers so it draws on members of that community to answer briefs on a case-by-case basis so what that enables us to do is pull in only the best people or the right people for that particular project at that particular time and the quality therefore that we're able to bring into every project team is that much higher these are people who are trading on their reputation and who've been in, perhaps in the industry a while but operating independently but coming together as teams to deliver these projects and we found that that more kind of linear non-hierarchical way of delivering work as an agency has enabled us to provide better quality people and a better quality of service as well what other challenges do you think this new way of working solves for you so that sort of access to great people is one. Yeah, I think in the book, we group the benefits into three areas, well-being, productivity and society. And there are, for us, actually, it was a challenge what to exclude from the book. There was so much we wanted to put in. <laughs> there are so many ways that this does work. And I think we have um, the catalyst for us starting to work this way was that technology reached a point where actually Wi-Fi was almost ubiquitous. Technology hardware was very portable. Um, The software was very accessible um, for people. And 
also we have a changing demographic. So we have an aging population. We have a labor market issue where we don't have enough people to, to fill the jobs. And that's going to get worse as people get older. So we need to reshape because of that. And we also have different attitudes to our work. So we're fundamentally um, approaching work and certainly the new generation coming into work have fundamentally different expectations from work. And so for us, it was the, all of those things that are the catalyst for testing working differently. But actually, the benefits for this are both for the individual, for the organisation and for society as a whole, because it also reshapes work to include people who otherwise are currently fundamentally excluded from work if they can't work nine to five, five days a week. That's the biggie, really, diversity and inclusion. So our ability to work this way, giving everybody the autonomy to decide when and where they work for themselves, removes the barriers to work of time and place that prohibit many people from being able to access work in the first place. So what that means is we're able to put together more diverse teams. We're looking into the cognitive science of collective intelligence to see how that can make our teams perform better than homogenous ones, groups of people who look, think and act the same as you tend to see in a lot of creative industries and agencies. So diversity is really the big benefit, I think, that comes from this and, and the ability to apply more diverse thinking to problem solving. Okay. And what are the downsides? I think the big challenge is for a lot of people who've worked in the workforce for a number of years, needing to unlearn what we've already learned. You know, Alex and I came up with the idea of work style. We run a company based on work style and I don't work Wednesdays, but I still sometimes on a Wednesday feel guilty that I'm not working. And that's my my previous conditioning. So I think there's partly a personal challenge, which is us learning to be autonomous, both in choosing when we work, but also in understanding for ourselves how we're most productive. Because previously, you would just go to an office instead of a desk, and that was all pre-decided for you. Sometimes not having those boundaries is a lot of pressure. You've got to decide when do I work best? What environment do I work best in? What kind of work do I want to be working on? So I think those are those are certainly challenges. I think the other challenge is for organizations moving from traditional working to work style working, I think there are cultural elements that have to go alongside that. This isn't just about structural change. This is about a different kind of culture. And that's because we need to change the everything around the way that we work so that we're talking about working autonomously, but we're also looking at trust-based working and output-based working, which is fundamentally a different approach to work. So we recognize we're one extreme end of this, we're a big experiment, but for organizations wanting to come some way to work style, I think that takes an investment of time and, and money in order to do that. It's one of the reasons we've written the book is to help the rest of the world catch up with us. So we've been doing it for eight years. And my work style, for example, is I work from nine till three with an hour for me in that time. So that hour for me, and I do that Monday to Friday, mostly it's to fit around the kids and their school schedule. But that hour for me might be spent doing some DIY or learning to play tennis, which is my new thing. But <laughs> that's great. And I love those things. But most of the people I know and I'm, and I'm friends with are not able to work autonomously and are therefore working within the confines of a nine to five Monday to Friday 
mindset. So what we're trying to do is give me some of my friends <laughs> for those hours when I'm uh, when I'm able to, because what we want is everybody to have this autonomy. And for and for I suppose one of the downsides is that not everyone has it yet, not everyone understands it yet, and we're kind of operating you know, in our own world. And it's taking a long time for the rest of the world to catch up. And that's why we want everyone to read our book. It seems to me there are two things that you've got there. One is not being in an office, which to me is different and separate from autonomy, which is also different and separate from how many hours you work. So I think maybe there's three, not two, right? And so I'd love to dive into each of those three things differently. You said you've picked you know, the way in which you've been working as a new agency is to pick people who've got reputation and expertise. So you're not picking people who are on an apprenticeship scheme. You're not, you haven't worked out how to work with graduates, people who need to learn. Not necessarily. So we will curate the team for the project. So if you work with an agency, then you get the person who just happens to have capacity at that time, right? Whereas at Hoxby, we've got 500 people. When we receive a brief, we break it down into its constituent parts and then we curate for the different people to deliver those individual outputs. And that team isn't necessarily all experience. So, for instance, one of the things we talk about in the book is intergenerational teams and how not only do people enjoy working in intergenerational teams, but it's also more productive because you can couple lifelong learned experience with intelligent naivety and so you're bringing that powerful combination of people who know things intimately and people who ask the really intelligent stupid questions um, in order to get something magical out the other side so for us we we would say that there are three conditions that are needed in order to foster work styles so the first is working asynchronously not synchronously so we don't all have to be working at the same time. And there are many tools to allow us to do that. The second is adopting a digital first mentality. So that's your office point, not expecting to have to be in the same place at the same time and expecting to communicate through Slack, for instance, which is our office at Hoxby. Um, and then thirdly, having a trust-based culture. So knowing that each person will play their part in order to deliver the whole, because we're all here to prove that this way of working produces exceptional work. Okay, so you've got implicit in there is that everybody's an A player, which my definition of that is top 10% of available talent, given job, given location, given salary, because A players do what they say they will do by definition. And so you have to have everybody has 100% say to do ratio or pretty close. It's important to note that, that you have to apply to get into Hoxby. We have a lot of applications. And what you're applying for is to be part of a community who have a vision to create a happier, more fulfilled society through a world of work without bias. So that's not applying to be part of a project. It's applying to change the world collectively. And then within that, you apply for the project. And what that means is that we have people who are united by a shared vision. Um, and also, it's a freelance community, and freelancers know they're only as good as their last piece of work, which makes a big difference. But also, we are supportive of each other. So we recognize that shit happens in life. You know, a lot's happened to me in the last couple of years, and the WorkStyle community have been amazing when I haven't been able to do something I thought I would, rallying around and us finding a way as a team to get through it. So I think there's, there's a big, important cultural element there as well. 
Yeah, I think that the fact that Hoxby is made up of freelancers is firstly because it's the only way that we can legally enable the kind of autonomy that work style affords. So freelancers can choose when and where they work for themselves. That's what we want. What we also want is to have a relationship with each person that is about output, not input. So we want everybody at Hoxby to be thinking about what's the output that I'm going to deliver as part of this project or within this team and to communicate with one another in those terms rather than in terms of job title or hours. So to your point, it's actually about what's the arrangement between Hoxby and the individual. You know, it's not the same as a traditional employment arrangement. It's a commitment to deliver output. I think that is where we're coming kind of to answer your question, I think, or your point around, you know, A plus or top level talent. It's actually more about knowing that you can deliver the output that you're committing to deliver than it is being the best in the top 10% in the world. Okay. Oh, no, it's not, it's not the top 10% in the world. It's just... Or senior. Well, it's, it's just being at a given salary level. Talent isn't distributed in a normal distribution. It's, it's a power law. So you can Google reckon their engineers are 350 better than average, 350 times better than average. And McKinsey did a long-term study of executives and they found those that were in flow in the work that they did were 500% more productive. So, you know, you're, if, if you're a freelancer and you've been doing it for a little while, you've worked out what you're good at and that you can earn money at it. And so by, I, to me, by definition, almost, if you've survived long enough to be a freelancer for a couple of years, then you're an A player because here's, a, you know, you, you must enjoy it enough <laughs> and you must be good at it enough that you're still around. Otherwise, you'd have starved to death. I think that's true. Um, but I'd also say that places like Hoxby that are actually increasing in number in terms of the, the operating model are also a safe space for people to make the transition from traditional employment into freelancing with the support of a community around them. So though a large number of people in Hoxby are seasoned freelancers, quite a few of them are people who are just turning their back on traditional work and want something different and come into Hoxby as one of many opportunities to to do work. When you're pricing work for your clients, are you using value-based pricing? It's output-based contracting, but we're, we have to, the only way that we can reliably price it at the moment is on the basis of time. Okay. So behind the scenes, how we pre-cost something is on an assumption of how long we think it's going to take. Okay. But then that's fixed. Okay. I, no, I was, just, I was just thinking of work with clients who are 100% remote. So their employees are employed, but they are global in nature and they're definitely based on output. You've gone freelance. So they, I'm just trying to pick out the... That's, they're not necessarily output in nature just because they're remote though, because you do have digital presenteeism if you're still targeting people on working certain hours rather than delivering certain output. Uh, these, these guys are high-level consulting all over the world, coming together as multifunctional teams. So I, I was just thinking, from what I know, it sounds very similar. And then you were saying, you know, in terms of traditional work, people aren't measured on outputs, but I, that's not true. You know, if you guys are at the 
tip of the spear, you are doing something that only a you know single digit percentage number of organizations are doing. And certainly there are some organizations that I work with where they're full-time employed and probably pre-COVID were 100% office-based and their employees were measured on output. So that's, pos- that's possible too, although from your perspective, and so I'm trying to tease out the differences because from your perspective, that wouldn't work for you because you're nine till three with an hour off at some point. So yeah, for, so for me, this comes back to underneath it all, what is the relationship between the company and the individual? Because if you are fundamentally employed against a 37 and a half hour a week contract as a person, that's the terms of the deal. So you might you might get briefed to deliver projects and measured against outputs, but ultimately your contract is based on how much time you do. And if you wanted to be a quiet quitter, you'd probably stick quite quite strictly to those 37 and a half hours a week. But if you think about yourself as someone who is being brought in to deliver an output, that is fundamentally different. And if you have the choice to decide for yourself when and where you work in the delivery of that output, that is also not the same. That, that's autonomy. And that's what we're talking about, is having that actual freedom to choose when and where you work for yourself. And the, and the, and the actual arrangement is about what you output. And it's asynchronous, which is another big key difference. Yeah. When you talk about... Um, how we're different from others. A lot of people conflate work style working with flexible working or with hybrid working. And they say, well, everyone's kind of moving this way. But for us, that is really different because, well, for three reasons, flexible working and hybrid working is fundamentally still flexing around an industrial age way of thinking. You know, the eight hour working day is over 200 years old and we're essentially tweaking that at the edges and secondly it's creating in-group out-group dynamics the norm is still you work five days a week uh nine to five and if you're outside of that you're often perceived as or perceive yourself as being special and different in some way which makes you feel like a kind of minority group but then the, the third thing is it's just not creating change fast enough so these excluded groups that we talk about in the book, they are fundamentally structurally excluded from work. And we need to create change in order to fundamentally include everyone in the same way, be they an older worker, a carer, someone with chronic illness, a physical disability, mental health challenges, parents, people who are neurodivergent. You know, those are groups of people that can't work in a more traditional way of working. And so if we're going to create better cognitive diversity at work, which produces better outcomes, we know, then we need to change the way that we work to include more people. Do all of those people, though, want to be freelance? I think they want to work. We know they want to work. So we don't know specifically how they want to work. And lots of them don't know how they want to work. Some of them do. People who are neurodivergent, we know that 77% of people with autism want to work, for instance, but only 26% currently do. But we know that they don't, to generalise, but lots of people who are neurodivergent don't want to work in an open plan office, for instance. So they're not necessarily as bothered about whether it's freelance or employed but they are bothered about it not being in an open plan office because it can create sensory overload so I think for them it's about being able to engage with work on their terms and individualizing work and having the autonomy rather than per se saying I want to be a freelancer and 
definitely, I think what it means today to be a freelancer versus a traditional employee is changing. So where where freelancing was the preserve of artists and painters and sculptors and the like, uh, not so long ago. Now there's all manner of what... Plumbers and plasterers. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but now there's, yes, plumbing. But there's also, you know, there's lots of work that is increasingly becoming more freelance based. And, and the lines between whether you're employed or freelance are becoming increasingly blurred and people are choosing you know different forms of work because they can now you know to lizzie's point earlier technology is enabling us to earn a living in multiple different ways and explore more of our whole selves through work than just having one job so what it means to be freelance is changing really really quickly i think what we're finding is what we think of as freelance now is actually what we think ultimately in the long term more people will do which is just having control over what work you do and considering yourself as someone of value and applying that value in lots of different ways to lots of different clients i can absolutely see if there's a if there's a continuum between company and individual i can absolutely see how what you're talking about is great for the individual if I'm an employer, what's great about it for me? I mean, I, now I would say that that sort of access to specific pools of talent is, again, is I've got examples of clients who've done exceptionally great jobs there at spotting those fishing holes and fishing in them because they're the only people in them and that's created huge value for them and the communities that they're, where they're recruiting from. But you're right, in general, people create a job ad, it's nine to five, come and work with us. We're amazing. Bring your talent 37 and a half hours a week to our office. But if I'm a, an enlightened employer, what should I be taking from your model? If I don't want to go freelance and fully remote? Mm. The biggest thing to take from what we've learned is to enable autonomy as far as possible. So, Autonomy has long been proven to increase productivity. There's lots of research that supports the more the, the more autonomy you can give to people, the more productive that they are. Work style is probably the extreme end of autonomy, but the principle remains that the more autonomous people can be, the more productive they can be. And we found through our research that that is true through through testing within the Hoxby environment for the last four years. We've also found that the reason for that is for an increased state of well-being. So the more autonomy you have, the better your well-being and therefore the more productive you are. So for organisations that are looking at uh, how to move in this direction, then it has to be with a focus on autonomy and genuine autonomy too, not just on a piece of paper. Autonomy this has to be about enabling people to actually choose when and where they work for themselves. And that's where Workstyle comes in, but it, it brings with it new challenges but they are challenges that we need to solve if we're to really take advantage of the opportunity in front of us now, post-pandemic, where attitudes are changing, eyes have been opened, and technology is evolving to enable us to work differently and asynchronously. And if we can do that effectively as organisations and as a species, then we think we can accelerate our ability to solve problems by including more people and working differently globally faster better 
I was just thinking from a construct perspective, Gallup's Q12, you know, the number one question at the bottom of the pyramid, I know what's expected of me at work every day. And Gallup say, okay, look, to be one of our top top surveyed companies, 75% of your staff have to give, say, five out of five as an answer to that question. And very few companies actually get past question one and first go round. When you've been doing your consulting, solving that autonomy problem, what, how are you able to help companies go from that sort of, as long as I'm in the office, people don't mind, to I now really understand what I'm supposed to be doing and I can measure that? I do think it takes work. <laughs> you know, we were at a conference uh, quite recently where I said, well, just try some, you know, lots of this stuff is free to try. We don't, we don't think it is necessarily. We think this is about being purposeful in changing the way that you work and restructuring in order to fit that model so that people can work when they're at their most energetic you know fit with their circadian rhythms but also be really clear about their individual output we were privileged to start hoxby working in a work style way and we recognize that that is a privilege being able to start a company working in this way means that you can you can start with everything set up for work style curating teams joining a community whereas for other organizations Autonomy is often something that's written into a policy, but not enacted by every line manager or not role modelled by leaders. And so for us, there are key things at a leadership level and at a cultural level that need to fit in order to make that work in practice. Um, So, for instance, within remote leadership, that's something that we have our own approach on um it's something we've been experimenting with since we started we've never had an office and so we've kind of codified that into 14 schemas that look at what are should be the focus areas of remote leadership as distinct from office-based leadership because they are different things and if you have one person working remotely then you should be adopting a remote leadership model even if the rest of the team are in the office the reality is i think And the principle of of businesses is they are just groups of people working towards a common goal. Now, the challenge is very often in the minds of people. And as Lizzie said, you know, there's people with leadership responsibilities. We need to help them rethink what it means to lead. Then there's everybody who's working in in an autonomous, asynchronous way. We need to help them rethink that and take ownership for it themselves. And part of that is learning and, and so therefore, a lot of what we do is look at how do we develop people? How do we enable them to self-serve their own development as well? How do we able, enable them to forge their own path and decide where that path is going to take them? So a lot of it is really just about helping people to understand the new environment in which we're all living and working and how to navigate it for themselves. And at an organisational level, probably the biggest thing to do is help people with that and give them a reason to want to be part of whatever it is that organization is doing. So a lot of what we do is uh, look at purpose and organizational purpose and how that transcends into why we're operating in an autonomous way. So for us at Hoxby, we want to change the world of work and we want to solve the world's problems. We want to have a positive impact on the planet. 
And we think the best way of doing that is by getting diverse thinkers together to solve those problems. And the way we do that is enabling autonomy to, as far as possible and as globally as possible. So being able to link organizational purpose to you know, why you're working or your methods is, is really key. And that's kind of where it all comes together. But ultimately, it's down to the people. One of the other Gallup Q12 questions is, I've got a best friend at work, which often when people take that survey, they snigger at. But, you know, Gallup have sort of re-engineered it from high-performing team studies. And the last time I looked, still more than half of people in the UK had met their spouse at work. So how many people at Hoxby have got married as a result of working together? Right question. Yeah, we are. <laughs> We've got a couple. We've got a couple. <laughs> you just know that going on Zoom's not the same as going down to the pub, right? And and those clients that we've got who are fully remote, you know, the CEO said to me, look, he said, Dom, I think people look for community outside of this organization. I don't think they look for community inside it because we just they're coming together to do great purposeful work with great people and they're gonna get a great sense of satisfaction from that. But they're not going to be hanging around having a cup of tea, playing football or going to the pub with each other because they live in different parts of the world and they might actually be working on this at different times even. I think that's, so this is such an interesting area that as you can imagine, we talk about all the time, which is connection when you're remote and globally dispersed. And I think it's important to recognise that as well as more than half of Brits having met their spouse, I'm not sure these stats add up, um, more than half of Brits say they suffer from loneliness in the workplace. Oh, I've met some married people who are still lonely, <laughs> right? Yes, so exactly. It's, there must be some It's a overlap. Venn diagram easily, sure. Must be. <laughs> Simply being in the office surrounded by people does not equate to connection. And connection needs to be purposefully built. And when we started Hoxby and we knew that Slack was going to be our office environment, if you will, we wanted to make it as easy to navigate digitally as you might understand an office to be so we created a channel called the boardroom for our big announcements a channel called the water cooler where we have pictures of dogs cats babies um, lots of gifts that kind of stuff and so we have gone out of our way to make sure that people can connect beyond work even though it's a digital environment and that's both physical and digital so the best example I would give of digital is I'm going through early menopause because of my cancer treatment. And there is a we have interest channels at Hoxby. The interest menopause channel has been by far my biggest support through navigating the challenges of the menopause. And that's because it's bringing together people who have something in common wherever they are in the world. Whereas often, if you're physically together, what you have in common is that you just happen to live in the same area. But we also have Hoxby, Hoxby Homes, Hoxby Meetups happening in real life as well. So people do still meet up and they do still connect. And we still recognize there's real value of in-person connection. But when people meet up, I think it was Brian Elliott who recently said in his book, Future of Work, about people should meet to break bread. You know, that when you're connecting with people in real life, what you're doing is you're building relationships and you are connecting. What you're not doing is working at your most productively because that's not, we just know that's not the case. Work, working asynchronously and remotely is more productive. So when we come together, what we're doing is we're recognizing that that is to build relationships and have fun, have a good time, basically. Well, Neoform, who are our client who 
work remotely. They've just had a global conference in Alicante. They brought their entire global organization together for Neofest. And so they're not they're not bringing people together to do work. They're bringing people together to meet and celebrate and break bed and have memories. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we, every year we have a, a, an event, um, refresh, we call it, where Hoxby's come together for the sole purpose of getting to know each other better. And we don't do work in that time. What we're doing is lots of different activities and things to get it, get to know each other better. And then we take those relationships back into our asynchronous ways of working and the deeper connections build you know more lasting relationships and and improve the way that our groups work together when they're on projects what else do you do to foster that your freelancers feel more connected to hoxby than they do to their own limited company assuming you think that's a challenge because if you have if you don't think that's a challenge you won't have tried to fix it so everyone who works at hoxby works on other stuff we're part of a portfolio for them for some of them, we aren't there for work. We're there for social connection. Some people join Hoxby just for the water cooler, you know, good good company. But I think we work hard to make our shared vision and our purpose as a company something that resonates with everyone in the organization and they feel connected to. We also share 25% of our profits with everyone in the community, regardless of whether they've done any paid work that quarter or not. So everyone has we've got a kind of cooperative model in that sense. Everyone has a a vested interest, but mostly I think it's about recruiting people into the community who believe in our purpose and our vision and what we're trying to achieve, which connects people. It's that I was after, you know, you said, well, we're investing in an event, annual event. We're investing 25% of our profits quarterly. So, you know, you don't have an office, so there's no that cost, but it's not it's not as if you're saying, okay, we're just going to drop that to the bottom line and bank it. You're saying, actually, we realise we need to do something and this is what we're doing. And I think that's really important, Dom, because I think that some people look at this model from the outside and think, well, that's really easy. You just get rid of all your costs. But you, you do need to invest in making this model work. It's just it's a really different kind of investment from what you'd be investing in if you had a big skyscraper in the city of London. The reality for Hoxby's is within Hoxby as a community, they have an opportunity to create something bigger than the sum of its parts. And ultimately they need to feel that and believe that. And that's partly, well, it's one of the main things that Lizzie and I do as leaders within that organisation is bring them together to be something bigger than the sum of its parts. And as an individual, as a freelancer, that's exciting. So there, there's an opportunity to have a bigger impact on the world through working with Hoxby than might be possible through the individual working, you know, as a self-employed professional. So it's an exciting string to their bow uh, is kind of how we'd like to think of it. What have I not asked you? If I'm, if I'm, a, if I'm a skeptical business owner. One of the questions we always used to get asked is how do you guarantee quality of work when you know, your teams don't really know each other or they're not employed. And not that either of those two things guarantees quality in the first place, but. <laughs> Indeed, but they are perceptions, yeah, yeah, yeah. misconceptions, frankly. But one of the things that we found pretty early on was within Hoxby as a freelance community, we had people with us for a long time. And actually, because it's not an employment contract in the traditional sense, they're part of a community 
and they've been been with us for the entirety of our journey so far. And I would say that you know, comparatively, retention is is better as a result of not having traditional employment contracts. So we're able to put more of the same people on regular types of projects for a certain client if that's important to them or part of the brief. So in terms of being able to guarantee and retain talent, I'd say we're in a better position as a result of the model. And then in terms of output, I think being able to put more appropriate people onto every project ensures we get to a better quality output rather than having to use the talent that happens to be employed to sit in the building and perhaps lives locally, which I think Lizzie talked about before. Okay. What is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? I wish I'd known there was going to be a global pandemic. (laughs) I wonder if that's everyone's answer, that they wish they'd known the pandemic was coming. But I think we would have written this book pre-pandemic. A lot of people have said I would have bought bitcoins. (laughs) <laughs> yes well wouldn't that be nice <laughs> i think for us for us things really changed during the pandemic because we've been the unusual ones working in a really different business model uh that people thought was risky and then the pandemic happened and suddenly everyone was coming to us saying how do you work give us all the detail on how you work and we were very fortunate and a lot of companies weren't to do really well during the pandemic. But if we'd known it was coming, we definitely would have written the book earlier so we could have just given it to everyone. Uh, But we still think it's highly relevant now coming out of pandemic when we're trying to make sure people don't go back to their old ways of working. That's a great answer, isn't it? Uh, I've had all this time to think about one and um, (laughs) can't can't beat that. I I think uh, probably I wish I'd known ages ago, you know, years ago, that the number of hours you work doesn't necessarily equate to the value that you bring and you know if I'd known that I probably would have been able to stop myself from reaching the point of burnout back then may not have created Hoxby or or Workstyle as a result so I can't regret it but you know in a way I think I wish someone had said that to me you know a long time ago and I probably would be better off psychologically (laughs) for it I don't know so other than picking up a copy of Workstyle from all good booksellers and or connecting with both of you. We'll put your contact details in the show notes. So if anybody wants to get Hoxby to help them on their journey, they can. But what other books have, Lizzie, you've mentioned a couple along the way. What other books have you found inspirational or useful? Or do you think other people should pick up and read? I would say, can I pick three? Yes. I'm going to pick three very different can. ones. Okay, so the, the first one would be Alex is raising his arms because there's nothing left, nothing <laughs> left for him. <laughs> Alex is now going to squirrel um, so, away to try and find yeah, fire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the first would be um, Natives, um, Racing Class in the Ruins of Empire by Akala, which for me was just an amazingly written, incredibly powerful book about pervasive inequality. And we talk in the book about excluded groups as different from discriminated groups. But for me, that just brought at home how for so many people their everyday lives continue to be impacted by judgments and and bias and that includes work the second one i would say is rebel ideas by matthew syed which alex would definitely have top of his list i'm sure which is about cognitive diversity but again brilliantly written and i think one of those books that everyone should read um, and then the third one I would say is um, a novel that I'm reading at the moment called Lessons in Chemistry which I'm sure lots of people have heard of it's by Bonnie Garmus and it's just 
for me a brilliant switch off uh, when I go to bed. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Rebel Ideas by Matthew Simon <laughs> <laughs> would be my would be my answer. Uh, it, it's brilliant, and you know, if you want to know about why diversity matters in business, then that's the read for me. But Lizzie's already mentioned that's part of her three. So I'll add one that she also mentioned earlier, which is How the Future Works by Brian Elliott, Sheila Submaranian and Helen Cup, which is also a very good book. They know a lot about this way of working and they introduce a lot of their findings from their research as part of the Future Forum, which is a, 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 a side aspect of Slack or funded by Slack. Okay. But looks at the future of work and it's, it's a good read. Where do you think we'll be? Where five years from now, I think the average moves really slowly, right? I mean, and, and a lot of the things you're doing is you're comparing what you do with an average business, which is still a really, in many cases, sort of sad place to be. But how, how far will, they, will the leading edge move, do you think, over the next five years? What are, you, what are some predictions for, the, for work? I mean, my feeling is that it has to move more than it ever has before. So COVID has, for all of, for all of the, the damage it's done, it's also given us an opportunity to rebase. Never before have we had such widespread understanding that there might be a different way to work. And it's on organisations and, and individuals to redefine what we want from work now, from this point forward, and take this opportunity that's that's here now, this moment in history, to redefine the way we work. Because if we don't, and we fall back into how we used to do it, then I think in a few generations' time, there'll be people asking some pretty big questions of why we did, why we did that. Because this is it, this is our moment to change the way we work. So I think in the next five years, we'll see very rapid advances in the technology that supports asynchronous and digital first working and very rapid adoption of new methods by people and the mindsets that need to go with that, such as work style. So the hope is that we can bring about accelerated change. And to put that into context, flexible working is more than 70 years old. The idea of flexible working is more than 70 years old. It's taken a long time to to get to the point that we're at now, which is even, you know, uh, many would say not not enough within organisations that you can request flexible working, but organisations don't necessarily have to, you know, honour that request. We need a fast, faster change. Yeah. The other thing I would add is that that faster change is going to have to happen for organisations to be sustainable. We know that 21% of the worldwide population is going to be over 60 by 2050. We know that that's having an impact on business. We have a case study in the book about Unilever, and in there they say almost a third of their workforce will reach retirement age in the next five years. So I think that not only are we at this inflection point where things could change, but I think for organisations, things must change because otherwise we're going to have a perpetuating labour market crisis. Um, and I think that could be the thing that moves things forward more quickly it's just one of the question actually that i forgot to ask you which is that one of the challenges that i've seen inside some client organizations is with the asynchronous nature of work uh where english is the common language of the business even so across the world it's not quite the same 
And so somebody writes something which they think is completely clear and then somebody else picks that up and it's not clear or in their mind it means something else. And just the challenge around sort of people feeling really happy to you, you know, you and I are speaking, we're in England, you know, there'll be some colloquialisms, there'll be some references to culture. Are you global in terms of the asynchronous work that you do? And have you come across some ways to solve some of these, it's in English, but it's not the same challenges? We are global. Yes. From day one, we realized that you needed to be really explicit in your communication. That's one of the things that we try to to help people become better at. So in the way you construct your messages, be explicit, be clear. We're also developing our own understanding of what it means to be inclusive in the way you write and the way you use hashtags and emojis and things like that. So that that applies to the English language as well as being you know, globally understood. But I think the reality is we're all kind of learning at the moment ways to do this. We're at the start of a new way of working. You know, we forget that we've been doing nine to five location based working for more than 200 years. So we're all pretty comfortable with that. This is all pretty new and we're developing new skills and how to do it well. So I think it's something that people will innately improve at and get better at and find ways to do better. We are kind of trying to learn from people within Hoxby who tell us what works or doesn't work. But that's an iterative and continuous process, I think. Right now, we're all learning how to do it well. And in the future, I can I can imagine that we'll have a new way of articulating things subtly, perhaps, but more inclusively. Partly technology is helping us as well. Google Meets, which we use for video calls now, can do live translations and the same on Slack, where you can read in a different language from something the way the language something was originally written in. So I think technology will help us on that journey as well. Then it allows people you to include people who don't speak English as their first language and translate backwards and forwards to them on the fly. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you both today. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having us. It's been great. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.